Hey guys, before we start this week's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Ryan McKay of Bovid Percussion in Ontario uh, for joining on the upper tier of the Drum History Podcast Patreon. So Ryan runs Bovid Percussion, which is quality rawhide drum heads specializing in multi-ply and furry heads. So these are those classic, basically looks like a cow on the front of your bass drum, which is super cool. Uh, DJ Fontana, kind of Elvis look. So check it out at Bovid, B-O-V-I-D, Percussion uh, on social media and keep up with them there. And if you want to join the Patreon and get a shout out on the episode, uh, look for the Patreon link in the description of this episode and you can learn more there. But uh, for now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Sahir Hanif from Masters of Maple. Sahir, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It is awesome. And and you go by Sai. So from here on out, I, do, I will call yeah. you Sai. Um, yeah. Dude, this is a cool one. First off, it's been really cool to kind of text and get to know you over email. Very nice and funny guy. Um, and I have a huge respect for you and your company. You guys are kind of legendary in the industry. Um, really, it's your name is fitting as being masters of maple, but also just wood in general. So this is going to be a cool one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, legendary is probably a little bit of a reach, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> Legends. <laughs> yeah. All right. So today, um, Cy, we're talking about uh, this is neat because like I, I've wanted to do a wood episode for a long time, um, you know, in general, like types of wood and all this stuff. But we're going even deeper today. And as you said before, forest to factory is kind of the what, what you guys say. We're, we're going to cover basically from the, you know, tree to the point of where it can be turned into a drum shell, which I think is fascinating. And I don't know very much about, um, and I'd love to learn more. So let's just hop in here and um, just take it away, man. Let's hear about it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me, man, having the time and honestly for doing everything you do. This is uh, one of my favorite podcasts uh, to listen to. And, you know, um, the last couple of weeks it's been uh, a last, this last week, I don't know when this will air, but this was kind of a, a big comfort too, because we lost our friend Jeremy. So yep. uh, that's been a big. Uh, well, Jeremy and I were really good friends for twenty years. So you know, since he started building in Orange County, I'd I'd started my company, and you know, we were always friends with each other. And he was such a cool cat, and yeah, I, uh, I can't tell you how. And I think there's a lot of people that goes without saying that. Uh, it gave us gave me a lot of comfort that I was able to listen to the episode again and again. I, I probably listened to it two, two or three times. Oh man, yeah. Um, and thank it's, you. It's been so cool. So yeah, man. Thanks for everything you're doing, and uh, you know, big love to all the Q Drum family and universe out there. So it's good. But uh, I remember, uh, you know, John, who's another friend of ours, uh, Revolution Drum, has mm-hmm. been dealing with cancer again. Yeah. And you know, Jeremy still made it a point to. Uh, Donate to his cause. So he was just a great guy. You know, yes, I, I can't yes. say enough nice stuff about him. And I think everybody would say the same. I mean, our situation was really unique because I mean, both guys are drum tech and, you know, built drums. And that was pretty much our lives, too, you know. And uh, I, I'm the only thing I regret is that, you know, towards the end of his life, we didn't get to spend a lot of time together because, you know, you can't really go visit people that are going through those kinds of treatments. And, all that no. stuff, but I will say again, seeing him on your podcast was so cool because just seeing his face again just made me so happy. And yeah, you know, it's kind of totally. cool because I, I think everybody says the same thing about what you're doing is that the oral history is so important. And who knows? Like, if you would have waited, you know, that episode would have never happened. And it's kind of crazy to think about that. Like, now we have that forever, you know, and we have his his piece yeah. that we can. You know, do that and weirdos like me can listen to him when uh when they're missing him so it's great yeah or his, <laughs> i mean I, I don't know but like his wife and his daughter maybe yeah. could hear their dad i mean it was like a month a little over a month i think before he he passed away so it was uh yeah extremely Crazy. grateful that it happened but uh, i appreciate yeah. that man yeah yeah ab- absolutely man so yeah okay my infatuation with this started when i was pretty young i've been i've been building drums for a decent amount of time now but I think the things that sparked my curiosity about this was my family's from Pakistan. So we, and you know, my dad scores Bollywood movies. So I grew up in a musical household, which is very fortunate to do that. Uh, of course in drums and later on in my other, you know, lines of work and touring and, you know, production management and tour direction and all that good stuff. But 
where it started was, is, you know, we grew up with an instrument called the tablas, you know, which, you know, some drummers are familiar with it. You sit down and you play it with both hands. It's, it's two separate drums. Uh, best way to describe it is, uh, you know, two hand drums. One's more bass oriented. The other one you could accent it with, uh, you know, your left or right hand, depending on what you're at with different finger movements. So I grew up with that. So there was always a percussion instrument in the house. And then there was a thing called the dole, which was a bigger one. And you could either play with your hands or sticks. So I remember getting a pretty good understanding from that from a very young age. And I would take them apart and I'd learn how to fix them with, you know, people that came through and did sessions with my dad. And then I really was just curious. I'm like, oh, how do they make these? What do they make it out of? And these look kind of weird. <laughs> like, how do you shape it? Like they had all kinds of contours. Yeah. And so that was kind of where it sparked it. So, I mean, to, uh, to make it easy, I mean, we'll go into types of drum shells and all that stuff with wood, but uh, essentially, you know, starting with what you can make a drum out of, you know, there's a few different substrates. Uh, there's a lot of great builders and companies doing some pretty incredible stuff with things right now, especially in the day of, you know, the technology we have at our disposal, which is amazing. So, you know, you could have, of course, like the acrylics, which are essentially plastics, uh, yep. fibers and composites, you know, a lot of cool stuff with fiberglass and like Kevlar's and all those good things. Metals, of course. And then, of course, wood, which is what we'll talk about now. And then within those different, you know, substrates in those respects, you can do all kinds of things. But within wood, you know, there's essentially three you know, of the more well-known kind of more standard, I guess, if you want to call it. Yep. So you can start with a log, uh, log drums, stave drums, block drums, whatever you want to call that. Uh, it, they're the same thing, same principles. Uh, from what I know, Chris Brady, who's kind of like one of my heroes, uh, Brady Drums in Australia, um, he was kind of one of the first people to bring those into like more of the commercial uh you know, I guess if you want to say forums of how it came sure. through. While we go, though, like just so everyone's on the same page with the log, stave, block, can you explain like, you know, yeah. briefly what that is? Of course. Yeah, of course. So uh, stave drums are essentially uh, sections that are measured out and you cut them depending on, you know, the size and the width of the drum or the height and the width of the drum, excuse me. And then, you know, you have to do a lot of math and be very precise about it. Because each drum or each section has to be exact, essentially, because when you fold it over, they're all blocks and that have contours with them that are supposed to fit together. And then you're going to be folding them into a circle, essentially, with, you know, clamps and jigs for the most part. And then after the glue settled up, uh, you're going to have to be lathing it down to make it a smooth drum shell. And that's essentially block drums or stave drums. Uh, and that's been around for quite uh, all these techniques, by the way, have been around for a long time. Uh, they're nothing new. I mentioned Chris because he was one of the guys that brought block drums to like the forefront, you know, uh, back in the 80s, either like early, yeah. early 80s, sure. late 70s. So that's uh, block and stave. And then you're going to move on to uh, one of my favorites. Uh, it's a bit of a monster to do, but, uh, you know, Craviato and a lot of other builders made this, you know, pretty much put it on the map and in my opinion you know johnny c was kind of the father of the modern solid solid uh shell so what you do for that is solid or steam bent drums which is the process in which you get them around you're going to be taking boards uh which are you know flat planks and any depending on the thicknesses you want uh dw came out a few years ago or probably 10 years ago my sense of time has warped after COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so everybody else. But yes. DW uh, years ago came out with a super solid, which was like, you know, an inch thick. And they used a different bending method to achieve that. But it's the same principle. So you're going to take a long, uh, you know, depending on the, the width and all that stuff, you're going to take a long plank. You're going to cut a scarf joint, essentially, which, uh, you know, do the opposite. So you fold it over together and it makes a nice seam and then you lay it down. But you're going to put that in a steam box. So that's going to give you some moisture. It's going to heat it up and it'll kind of make it a little bit elastic. -y. You know, think of mm. like a construction paper or something like that, or, you know, yeah. anything that big piece of spaghetti, essentially sure. <laughs> spaghetti wood noodles, you know, always yep. good. Yep. And then you're going to take that out. And then the same thing, you're going to wrap it around a form on the outside. And then you're going to be probably putting another form on it. 
um, and then they're going to clamp the hell out of it, and <laughs> you let that dry. And you usually do that in sections because, you know, a bass drum is going to be 14, 16, 18, 20, however deep you're going to want that. Um, you're also dealing with tree logs and what's available to you. A lot of the boards are usually anywhere from 6 to 10 inches. So sometimes you'll be doing two to three sections to give you the actual height of the drum you want. So that's oh, wow. why. And so sometimes, you know, like the Craviato stuff is really famous for having that inlay. Yeah. Uh, it's functional, but it's also, you know, it's an aesthetic thing too. It's functional being that that line is basically where the shells fuse together to give you the depth, right? Gotcha. So, yeah. and then they do that beautiful inlay to obviously make it pop, but it kind of hides the seam. Uh, some of the other companies, again, no disrespect to them, if they don't like to do that, you might see like a thin line. You barely see it sometimes if it's a darker wood. But yeah. sometimes in the lighter stuff, like a maple or an ash or like a birch, you'll you'll kind of see a little bit of a, a thing. But, you know, that's kind of the deal. But once you fuse those pieces together, it's, again, you've got that scarf joint that kind of overlaps. So then you're going to have to go and, uh, you know, cut it down to size and then you're going to have to true it and true it as being, you know, get it to the point where it's completely flat, completely round. And a lot of the times you're either going to use like a CNC or, you know, an lathe or something like that and Hmm. get that thing really smooth. And then that's together. And then typically you'll install reinforcement rings on that to keep it really round. And the same process happens with the re-rings, you know, you'll do the scarf joint and single ply it and, and that's a really intense process because it, t- it takes a long time. It takes a lot of patience. I'm sure. You have to have a lot of, like, equipment, too. And, you know, again, um, some of the stuff when we get into ply, ply shells, too, because that's where we really uh, – that's our real specialty and kind of what I've been obsessed over, you know, about 20 years, really. But it's kind of like you really have to make your own stuff. And so I think drummers, you know, again, even a, you know, like a drum maker or a drummer, you're – you're really kind of resourceful, you know, like again, the, the hi hat, you know, hi hat stand goes out and, you know, the rod yeah. goes out, you don't have a clutch, you figure out how to do it. Yeah. It's the same mentality because, you know, you're taking basically a, a big tree and trying to figure out how it becomes like a drum shell and how do you hit it and put stuff on yeah. it to make it sound good. So it's kind of, it's pretty much nuts in its own right well, too. But And that's where like the big dogs stick out of like that. That's where it's like art, like the perfection of like selecting pieces of wood that look perfect next to each other and, and it all blending. And I mean, I, the only, and I'm probably gonna ask a bunch of stupid questions, but the thing that pops up in in my mind is like, if you're building a shell in different, like, you know, segments and you're putting them together to get to the right height, how do you connect them? Is it just a certain kind of glue or how do you fuse them together? Yeah. So fusing is a fancy term for gluing this together and praying it doesn't ever come loose. And so there's a lot of different, uh, products you can use. So, but again, once you kind of figure out your own flow and your your setup for what works for you, that's why some of these builders would have their own little recipes and formulas. Like even for uh, a wood glue, for instance, right? Just you know, you can go to Home Depot and get tight bond. Like people mm-hmm. use that. We use it all the time for stuff too. It's not like we have some secret. Uh, I would love to tell you, Bart, that there is a secret Illuminati uh, drum <laughs> supply uh, website that nobody can get into aside from 30, 40 people, but yeah. it's not that way. I mean, again, Type Bond is great. Some people use like Gorilla Glue. It just depends on what you feel comfortable doing and honestly, how much sanding you want to do after to make it look pretty. So that's fine. Yeah. But uh, Got it. we use like in some of our shells, uh, we'll use a like urea formaldehyde. Uh, like a catalyzed glue, you know? And so that has all kinds of different additives, but then we changed up our formula a few years ago uh, for the catalyzer to be a little bit stronger. And for those of you guys don't know out there, catalyzing is just a, it's a hardener, you know? So it's a two part thing. So it's like the main parts, the glue catalyzer hardens hardens it, excuse me. And uh, makes it like rock solid for what we're doing. So, yeah, to answer your question, you'll put wood glue on it, you'll glue it up, you'll put it in your forms or your clamps, and then you'll let it sit usually for about a day. I mean, if you're doing solids and, you know, staves, um, there are segment shells where they go the other way, where they start, uh, you know, layering from top to bottom, too. I mean, it really, but it's the same principle, essentially. You're kind of putting it all yeah. together to lay it down. You know, you're 
you're putting you're making blocks round essentially i mean i know that gotcha. sounds kind of dumb but that's the best way i can you know describe it no, that makes sense and then you shave shave it off to kind of get yeah. it to the the round yeah. okay yeah to you want to make it smooth but also you know you have to get it to the right diameter as well to make sure a drum head fits over it and you have to kind of consider how thick it is especially in ply shells too because sometimes people wrap those drums you have to account for any kind of material and substrate because you know, you don't want the shell to be too wide. So, you know, the head's just like super snug and you're going to have all kinds of problems with tuning. And then when you factor in lugs and gaskets and, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, it could be a whole. <laughs> so that's why you really have to think these things through. And again, you're basically getting to the point where you have a, a finished drum shell is almost as much work as the drum set itself. You know, I mean, yeah, so many steps to get to the point where you just get a drum shell and that's why, you know, a lot of builders will use, you know, like Keller or, you know, Nordic. Those guys are making great stuff. Like, you know, it's it's a labor of love and it's really intense. And that's why some people are like, you know, oh, man, like, uh, you know, we, we used to sell some bare shells here and there, like just standards, you know, like maple or whatever. But and I used to tell people, I'm like, just go buy the Keller stuff, man. It's awesome. They do a good job. Yeah. You know, whatever little voids and stuff you need to fill sure. might be worth it because, you know, the scale they're buying at. I mean, they're a giant furniture company. Yeah. 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 There's you know, an episode on Keller. And yeah. It was insane to hear about everything else. Like the drum is the drum part is oh, yeah. small. Yeah. It's it's so small and it's so funny. It's like one factory. I think they're up in uh, New Hampshire. It's like they make 90% of drum shells, which it's kind <laughs> of amazing, you know, but yeah. it's such a small thing for them because it's a massive furniture maker. But Point being is that sometimes like a, a snare shell, you know, six and a half by 14, I have, you know, like 200 bucks worth of labor and materials in it and they could do it for like 60, you know. So sometimes it's like, yeah, it just makes more sense. But it really is, you know, it's pretty intense, you know, the amount of materials yeah. and glues and, you know, all the, all the stuff you need to actually do it. And then the forms and the presses and all that stuff, like, you know, that's millions of dollars worth of equipment sometimes sure. just to get it to that point, you know, and, and it really is because like, I know Johnny Graviato, who's a good friend of ours, but before he passed away, I remember we got to spend some time together and it was like you know, these old World War II machines to bend everything or, you know, these hot forms that they would use, like Jeez. they would have to buy the machines and then they would have to make these forms and jigs that were, you know, 26 inch bass drums just imagine making a giant metal circle that would sit on the inside of it like you gotta uh, you know it's a lot of metal so yeah it's yeah. just the, kind of you know no and the the infrastructure needed to make the stuff and to even like having a floor strong enough to support this stuff is like a different level and i think the number one question of any company that comes up is well do they, do they make their own shells and I sure. think it's like you got to step back and, and look and be and for a lot of companies, if the answer is no, it's like give them a break because, I mean, it's extremely. Yeah, y you got to know you can't know every single piece, but they, it's great because guys like you, it's their passion and they, you know, someone yeah. someone needs to be focused on it. Yeah. And I, I'll just touch on that for a second, too. It's like, you know, when we used to I, my thing was I always wanted to make drum shells mainly because even though it's called masters of maple like we haven't done like a full maple kit in years like no one really asked for it and it's kind of like <laughs> you know That's we always we always joke around we're like should we do like the offshoot like the bastards of birch line or something like that like <laughs> yeah we haven't done a pure maple kit in i mean probably close to five six years you know at any point mm. because there's so many things we we can do and blends and all the things we offer but you know with that was that, you know, I started the company in 2000, officially on paper, you know, 2002. I mean, 20 something years ago, it was Keller and that was it. There was nothing, you know, there was no, the Nordic guys, like I mentioned too, like you couldn't even buy veneer to build your own shells. Like it was too costly. Nobody cared. Like it was kind of wild, you know, and you'd get these like two plied paper you know, or like two ply veneers and one side would be nice and the other side would be just junk wood. So, yeah, you know, paperback yeah. veneers. Like, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a good scene back then. So a lot sure. has changed, but yeah, you're right. I mean, to do that, granted the, the heart and soul of a drum is the shell, you know, any way you look at it. 
Everything yeah. else is just an addition and an extension of it and like the conduit of that. But realistically, you know, it's a really hard game to get into. It's a real commitment. You know, like I'll say this, like, and it's not to brag or anything, but like when you get into, you know, we have all the same machines that the big guys have. Um, you're in for about a million bucks all, all in, you know, and it's no joke. Wow. Like it's, yeah. you know, from start to finish, developing them, finding the sourcing, you know, finding the right people to make that. And again, you're usually going to make a couple of them twice because, you yeah. know, it's uh, you're dealing with companies in Taiwan and deep in China and it's very closed off. And if you don't speak the language, like it's a, it's a risky business, you know? So getting to the point where you can actually build a drum shell with machines and all that kind of stuff to scale takes years sometimes. So, you know, I will say that Sometimes when, you know, people are just like, oh, you know, you don't build your own shells. These guys suck. It's, there's a lot of things that go into it. I think Max on the um, Q episode in like yeah. kind of passing said a joke of like, oh, do you make your own shells? It's like, yeah, no, we don't have our own foundry <laughs> pouring metal, yeah. liquid hot metal. We don't metal. smelt it's like, everything. We don't smelt. <laughs> there's no smelting. Yeah. So we don't it's... make our own copper. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like Jesus. So the are three main wood type or types of shells out of wood, let's just say. Right. So. The stave, log, block drum, the solid steam vents, and then we get to the ply construction, which are multiple layers uh, glued together to form, you know, a cylindrical shape of a drum yep. shell, if you want to call it that. And again, uh, Chris Brady was uh, a, a guy that was big into the innovation of this. Uh, I mean, there's so many people that came before us. You know, again, Noble and Cooley is like one of the oldest drum companies on the planet. They've been doing solids forever. Yeah, uh, and so many people that came after to help innovate and and beef things up. It was it was pretty great. So that's kind of where uh, it takes us to now. So those are your three main types. And so I think now I'll probably just walk everybody through what it actually takes to get you to the point where you're ready to build a drum kit for a customer, or yourself, or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. And that starts from the trees, you know. So really, everything from forest to factory happens at this point. So Sourcing logs is another industry in itself. I mean, you know, out of a out of an actual tree log that's maybe let's say you're going into a forest and you're looking around like what could be made into a tree. Um, getting to that point takes takes a lot of work because you're usually working with like an arborist, and then you go in and you either sublease a plot of land or you buy a plot of land that has trees on it, and that's a whole that's a whole process too. Cause some of these people that have had, especially in the States, you know, some of these people that have had these tracts of land, they've been in the family forever. That's yeah. like their retirement plan, you know, sure. <laughs> old, old peepaw bought, you know, some gum <laughs> trees back. In the day. <laughs> so That's a big thing. But a lot of people in order to do that, you know, you're not going to use every piece of a log, you know, it's just, yeah. it's not realistic. So, we, we've bought logs before we buy veneers. We, you know, we work with a, a host of different people, you know? So there's this guy, Don Sadler, who's considered like the wood master. He works with DW. He's worked with everybody. He's like the godfather of, of uh, maple in Northern Michigan. Right. So he's one guy, uh, our, our good friend, Brett Hesser, who we use a lot. It's been a kind of my partner in crime. Brett works with a lot of different loggers uh, he's a logger himself, we cut trees down, we bring everything in, and then we go to uh, we go into actually making it a drum shell. But the sourcing is such an important part because just like anything else, you need to make sure it comes from the right places. It has, you know, a, a tree, you can kind of take a look at it and be like, well, it's not going to be the best for, you know, a drum essentially because it's got a lot of branches and, you know, it's, it's not going to be good to cut or, you know, th there's so many things you could factor in. But Typically, yeah. what you'll do is you'll work with, you know, again, either a logger or a veneer broker or something like that, and you'll buy a big pallet of wood or a flitch or a sequence is what we call it sometimes of like hmm. a piece of this gigantor tree, and that'll come in, and depending on if it comes in either a log or, you know, pieces of veneer that you'll make into plywood you know, that's when you're going to get into cutting it and cutting it, you know, again, depending on the grain you're getting, there's like rotary cutting, which basically takes the log and puts it on a spindle and spins it and a blade comes out and shaves it. But that's the mill, 
usually. So like a timber mill and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, when everybody hears about, you know, timber mills closing up, that's what they would do. You would bring the logs in there. They would uh, take all the bark off. They would get them ready. Uh, they would let them dry a little bit, depending on what it was, you know, what, what you're actually doing. And then they'll actually cut them down to the point where uh, once it's cut, you know, you'll get these kind of flat curved pieces, but then they need to be dried as well. So you have to dry it out to get the moisture out in order yeah. to, uh, you know, make it into a sheet that's eventually going to be made into a drum shell. And sometimes that process takes, you know, days, weeks, months, years, whatever you're going to try and do with it, depending on what it is to, you know, oil and moisture content are a big part of what we do um, because they're not, they make things less workable and workable, really, or malleable, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yeah, so, yeah. Once everything gets dried, then you're ready to make plywood. And so people kind of get it you know, a little bit confused, and that's why I'm happy we're doing this to where you know, people hear like, okay, well, you're making flat plies, and then there's ply shells. But basically, you're going to get these really thin pieces of veneer uh, to be, for all the nerds out there, a 42nd of an inch. So it's very thin. That's going to be like this. So... You know, little. This is just plain maple. You know, wow. Okay, thin enough. It's it's malleable, but it's dried, and you know, it's a pretty piece of wood. This could be made into a drum if it's on a sheet, essentially. So, what you're going to do is get to the point where you've got. But if you had to make a ten ply snare drum shell with all this kind of delicate veneer, it's going to be a disaster trying to deal with it. Plus, we're dealing with the same thing, like I said earlier, with. the sections you know so like when you're doing steam bent you need to be able to have a drum that's tall enough to or sections to make into a drum that's tall enough yeah. for what you want to do same thing depending on the type of wood you're getting some of the exotic stuff grows you know, a little bit smaller a little bit bigger and that's the other thing too it's it's nature there's no you know you can't plant a row of 30 identical trees that are, you know, this wide. <laughs> and they all grow the same. And yeah, no. <laughs> it's a really cool thing we have yeah, going on here. We great. do that. The rest of them don't, you know. So no, it's a whole thing. you guys care. Well, <laughs> wait, let me ask you. All right, just so like I keep up with it. So the super 40 seconds of an inch sheet that you just held up, how many of those are? So those are then layered together to then make one ply, correct? No. So the... The piece that's a 42nd of an inch, that is the one ply. Oh, that's a ply. Got it. Got it. Got it. But you have to build it up. So, and and that's also too, we got to go into grain orientation, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, vertical, horizontal to build it up. And then you stagger the seams, which we'll get to in a second. But essentially, you're making the finished product that should come out from the mill and drying is going to be a 42nd of an inch. Sometimes we do thicker stuff depending on what we're making, so a 32nd of an inch. Mm. And what you're going to get is that's one ply. I see. So then you're going to have to glue that all up and usually use a bunch of veneer tape to make uh, essentially like a 4 by 8 sheet. You know, it's the most common thing. Um, if you go to Home Depot, a good sense of, uh, you know, for contact is that you get that big 4 by 8 you know, piece for, you know, a house that you're framing. That's essentially what you're going to make uh, gotcha. The veneers into right, so that'll be one ply, and then on the other side, you got to make a second ply. So you make them in two and three ply sections, depending on what you're going to do, and you make your layers to essentially make your drum shell, depending on how thick you want it. So mm. that sounded very wordy, but essentially, no, it's stick with yeah. me, kids. We basically <laughs> got to do a plot. You know, each thing is a ply. You know, so if you want a six ply shell, you got you know two two ply sections times three and then you kind of cut and stagger so once you make your ply shells you basically have to get those things right and laid up to where there's a top and a bottom and then you lay up the uh the grain depending on the orientation you need because that's going to help give you strength for your shell you know and then you're going to put that in a big press it'll come down flatten it uh it'll cook it essentially again that glue like we were talking about there's catalyzed glue that go into it and that makes you're making plies or veneer or plywood, whatever you want to call that. And once you have enough of those, you have enough to make a drum shell, essentially, depending on how thick you want it. And so once you say you do that two, three times to make your sections, say we're doing, you know, uh, seven ply shell. So 
it's going to be a two-ply sheet, a three-ply sheet, and another two-ply sheet. And then you orient them depending on if you want the grain vertical on the inside, horizontal on the inside, uh, depending on if you want what you want on the outside. If it's a wrap kit, you can use a regular piece of uh, maple or walnut or whatever you want to use. Uh, if it's an exotic, then that outer veneer is you kind of have to reverse engineer it of how you're going to lay it up. Yeah. And that, because that's going to be what we call the face. Your face veneer on the inside and the outside are really not that, you know, the cores aren't important or any prettier, but, you know, if no there's like, a, yeah, if there's like a defect, and as long as there's nothing like missing or like a knot or something in it, you know, if it's sometimes plain maple, I mean, it sounds great. It's just boring to look at. But sure. if it's on the inside, no one really cares because, you know, it's not going to get looked at. But we typically try it because we're making small batch drums too. Uh, typically what we're going to do is make sure the inside is the nicest we can possibly get it because people, you know, that's what you see. You know, yeah. essentially once you get to the point where you've got your sheets done, then you're going to cut everything down to the right height. Um you know, say if we're making a waste is a big part of what we do. Um, not saying we like to waste stuff, but there's a lot of yeah. trimming and cutting. So you have enough material to get that perfect drum shell. If it's a, you know, eight inch Tom, you're not building all these things to eight inches. You're usually going to do about 10, 11 inches. So there's enough to trim and yeah, yeah, get yeah. your stuff sure. going with that, you know? So yep. once we get to that point, we're going to cut all our veneers to that finish size, which is 11 inches tall, let's say, for sake of argument. But then you're going to make your sections, uh, you know, you're going to make your cuts so everything fits together properly in the mold, and the press, or however you're making them. In our, in our world, it's, you know, our, our hydraulic molds. Three sections go in, and then you stagger the seam because you want to make sure that your shell is the toughest possible and... There's all kind of physical properties to where you don't want all the seams lining up together in one spot because if there was some kind of an impact, the thing would just crumble. You know, like if it dropped right there, it would just shatter. That would. Yeah, I mean, if you you know, drumstick goes through it, angry uh, yeah. bass player, you know, whatever, it's just going to be. Oh, it's usually the bass players. You know? It's always the bass player. Uh, always, man. Always. <laughs> so that would be the thing. So you stagger your seams. So you have typically what we try and do is we work within a triangle. You know, so you try and evenly space them out the best you can. You can follow pie. You could do anything you need to do in order to make it as perfect as you want. But typically, you'll have three different stress points, so it's evenly distributed. Oh, wow. Um, and that's something we map out, too. Um, and we have, like, our old binders of just all these standards we have to where they're aligned. Each diameter, you know, from 6 to 28 that we make, each pressure point, we'll call it, you know, seam pressure point, is uh, specifically spaced so that hardware doesn't rest on them, so they're completely free from any extra stress. Because they're already, you know, you got to be thinking these things are going to be sound chambers, they're resonating. There's already tension on the entire shell because when you put sure. your hardware on it, push and pull, you know, the whole thing, simple tension property. It's, um, you know, yeah. that, that's kind of what you're dealing with. So. Once yeah. you get to that point, then you glue it up. And again, whatever kind of glue you want to work with, guys that are, guys and gals that are out there that are builders, if you use like tight bond or whatever, whatever it is, it's totally fine, you know. And then you're gonna, you're literally gonna, I call it, we call it buttering, but you know, it's just like a little stupid joke we have. But once you <laughs> butter the bread, then you kind of lay it up to go into the mold. And once the mold gets kicked on, then you know it applies a certain amount of. Uh, pressure per square inch uh, to the actual veneers, and then it cooks essentially for a few minutes depending on what it is. And then when it, com when it comes out of the mold, the reason like we have a two-part glue is that heat activates the catalyst to make it hard, and then it's ready to be completely cooked in there. So yeah. once the shell comes out, it is, it's pretty hot. You know, it could be anywhere sure. from upwards of 90 degrees and it comes out of the mold and you let that thing cool and pray your hand didn't get caught in there. <laughs> and, and then you let yeah. that thing cool down for a few hours and, you know, then you start trimming it, you know, cause you got to get it, you got to make sure it's completely uh, flat for your edges and all that stuff. So you trim it down, get all that glue off, you know, you check your seams, you go through everything. And essentially then you got something that looks like this. So this is like a full on, you know, just a, 10, uh, 10, 10 inch six ply 
all maple. Beautiful. You know, um, it's got really pretty inside, a little bit of figuring. Seems good. You know, you give it a quick sand, and then you are ready to actually build a drum, you know, essentially, once you've got to clean it up. And then that's when people can take it and create it to be whatever they want with their bearing edges and their sure. hardware and their whatever little tricks yeah. they want to do. This episode is brought to you by Dixon Drums. I recently got a Dixon Little Rumor drum set, and it is great. I wanted a high-quality, compact kit to fit in my living room with a small footprint, but it also needed to look nice enough to keep my wife happy. The Little Rumor has been perfect for what I needed. It's an affordable kit that comes in multiple finishes and configurations. I got satin black coal lacquer with the Little Rumor hardware pack and cases, and I'm loving the strength and lightness of the stands and the quality of the pedals and the comfort of the throne. It's just awesome. Learn more at PlayDixon.com and find your local Dixon retailer to get your own Dixon drums. Also, I posted an unboxing video of uh, me opening my Dixon Little Rumor drum set, and I set them up, and I played them, and uh, gave kind of a review on them. So you can check that out on the Drum History Podcast YouTube channel or at the link in the description of this episode. So thank you to Dixon for sponsoring this episode. Very interesting. I do want to say, kind of backing up to where you were talking about the stress points and things like that, and and I am by no means an expert on this, but it seems like looking through old like drum catalogs and pictures, like the quest to like not have like reinforcement rings, like re rings inside of a drum, and to strengthen them and to not have it go like out of round, was like a journey in the drum industry yeah. to like get it figured out. And you have it like you're like you're doing. I mean, you're talking about pie and doing things and you know triangulating. Yeah. It's a some next level stuff. Whereas in like the fifties, I don't think they had that technology. So this not, <laughs> took a while to get there. Not at all. Well, yeah, and also too, I think it was a sign of the times. It was just uh, nowadays everybody has so much time to just scrutinize, and you know, some people on drums love to just point out yeah. little things, and that's fine. It's it's a race for. I think it's a quest for perfection. You know, uh, it really is because the rounder, the more solid, the less gaps in the actual shell the you're you're basically trying to build clean resonating tubes you know yeah. any way you slice it you want a perfect circle that resonates completely independent of any voids and any air escaping because you know physics is pretty straightforward you know it's just like you know the energy comes from the inside and the better things fit together and work together they're going to they're going to resonate better you know sure. i mean that's that's not the technical term but i mean to simplify it for anybody out there especially if anybody's a little bit scared to try it or get into it again measure twice cut once you know that's that's all yeah. it is is that you really have to spend some time but i think some people really lose sight of like ah, it's just a drum shell cool just throw it in there but it takes so much work and so much science and so much engineering yeah. and trial and error to really get these things that almost, you know, some people take for granted. It's like, yeah, whatever, man, it's fine. It's a drum. Agree. And that's why, yeah, and, and that's true. It's like, that's why we're very selective, like, you know, with the master stuff, like who we work with and our artists. And we only put out a certain amount of, like, we do 50 kits a year, but we've been doing that for 10, 12 hmm. years. Like, the limited edition stuff is nothing new to us. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's becoming more prominent in the industry now because maybe it's like a little bit of a buzz and like kind of a kitschy thing. But we just did it because we just didn't have the capacity. You know, it's like I couldn't yeah. if you if you called me tomorrow and said, I want 100 drum kits. I'd be like, dude, are you kidding? <laughs> be insane. Well, but it's like that makes it more rare. That goes back to like yeah. collecting. It's like a like baseball cards or something. It's like, well, there's only a hundred sure. of them. That's why it's valuable. But it's not even like you're doing it for that reason. You're doing it to not. You could make them faster and cheaper, make 200 faster and cheaper, but instead yeah. do 50. And yeah, and it um, just it loses the vibe. But it's also there's so much stuff that goes into, you know, so we have clients sometimes and, you know, friends and stuff that are like, yo, I just need I just need a snare drum. Like, I don't get why it's going to take three, four or five weeks or two months. Like, it's just dude, just pull it off the shelf and do what you do. I'm like, dude, if I <laughs> if I had everything pressed all the time i would be on easy street man but yeah you know like some of the rosewoods and all that stuff like you know i'll, I'll call over where we have all our stuff stored that's like in a vault and it's climate controlled and it's like mm. Mm, you know it, it needs a few more weeks or you know or yeah. sometimes it'll be like hey i've i found this that's like ready to go like 
any interest in that, you know, like it just sure. depends on what it is because it's close to what you're going for or, you know, Hey man, this is dried. Like, Oh my God, we need to make something with that, you know? So and, and, it really yeah. just depends. And it's cause you're looking for the right oil and moisture, correct? Like for it yeah. to be, is that what's considered like this one's done? This one's ready. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also too, people forget is that when things come into our shop that are ready to get cut into shells, like, you only have a window, a certain window to do it. Like we can't have, you know, because again, we've got uh, the breeze from the Channel Islands and then, you know, the heat coming in too. It's like wood's living. So it'll like, it'll shrink, it'll, and that's the other thing too. We have standards of sizes we cut, but depending on how hot or cold it is that day and what that wood's doing, you might have to trim a little bit here, a little bit there. There's no form that goes in. It's like, okay, the third set, this is your inside section of a 12 inch rack, Tom, boom, boom, that's it. And that's, that's all she wrote. It's like the, you know, rosewood sometimes is, you know, it's going to act a different way than like an ash or mahogany. Yeah. You know, so it's just kind of playing with the whole thing. And a lot of, it's a lot of weird chemistry that you're, you know, you're playing with nature too. And it's just, Oh yeah. We, we did drums out of Brazilian rosewood for the NAM show. I think in, uh, 2016 and dude it was it took us a year to almost make i didn't think they were going to make it for the nam show because God. this wood just had to calm down and do whatever it was doing it's it was like a 50 year old piece of brazilian rosewood that just was encased in wax for like Jeez. 40 oh, years man. you know so like getting the wax off it so that it preserved it and no bugs could get in yeah, um, sure that you know that was just like that took four months in itself, you know, so it's just kind of like, and the wood was kind of pissed off the whole time, just was <laughs> curling and the wood probably hates you. It's like, dude, I was doing fine yeah, before this. That wood was really tough because it was like uh, pieces would splinter off and it was so sharp, you know, it went through, you know, a couple of our hands. Like it was, oh, it man. was no joke. It was, it's pretty nuts. But that's the other thing too, is like, you know, uh, not to jump around, but even during that process of laying everything up, getting ready to glue it to make it into a ply shell. You know, the things are like curling a little bit. They're not completely flat. So sometimes you have to, like you make like a veneer relaxer, you know, in the simplest okay. way. And it's it's water and uh, sugar. It's like sugar water, you know, because wood's like a cellulose structure too. So it'll soak all that stuff up. But, you know, depending on how dry some of these woods are and where they come from, you know, you spray that on like gum wood or something like that or cherry. It's You don't even need to. But the Brazilian rosewood would be all tangled up. And in order to be able to glue it and put it in the mold, you know, it's so hard. It was like brittle at that point. We'd yeah. spray it with a relaxer, go to lunch. An hour or two later, it'd be mellow. And then another hour later, without touching, it would just curl up in it again <laughs> and just give you the finger. And you were like, that's crazy. Dude, really? <laughs> Wow. Do you not want to be made into drums? Like, <laughs> yeah. how dare you? All right. And then another question that uh, there was a lot of things you're saying remind me of an episode with Jeff Kirsch, uh, who's a great, uh-huh. you know, drum builder, restorer, all this stuff. But um, oh, cool. it's making me think of, I believe we had a topic, uh, a discussion that I think a lot of people talk about is the like pitching of shells and like holding up a drum shell and like knocking on it and, and pitch, pitching a kit with like where you have the note on it. Obviously, DW has like famously done that and stuff. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think uh, timber matching is cool. I think my honest opinion is that I think what they do is really cool and interesting, and I think it's a really unique take on it. But at the scale that some of these companies are buying wood, unless it comes from the same tree, I don't think it's going to resonate as purely as it can. And yeah. sometimes we're lucky enough to buy a small tree that we're going to make, you know, X amount of kits out of it. Yeah, you know, but that's the thing. It's like when you have these massive pallets of, you know, maple and all this stuff coming in, you're pulling different parts of different trees and putting them together. So, again, that is why they do something like that, I believe, you know, to try and make it resonate well together. But you want to make these things sing together. You know, they should work together sonically as far as, you know, the depths you choose, head selection, all that kind of stuff. But again, that doesn't, you know, heads and hardware and all that doesn't matter unless you have a good baseline, which is the shell, you know, because that's like your engine essentially of everything. But I think pitching is really cool to try and get it to sound, uh, you know, nice together. But, you know, again, I, I think that 
you know, you could kind of use that in a way to to get it close. But I think, yeah, you yeah. know, there's a lot of different factors in that. Again, even that statement I said of like, unless it's in the same tree, like who really knows? But even with drumstick making, like they use the bottom part of the tree because it's the best and it's seasoned and it, it feels and sounds a certain way. Um, but realistically, it's like, you know, we've had logs come in where i'm like this is so different from you know like the 10 and the 13 you're like do you guys even like each other like interesting you know? so, yeah it's yeah nature. like angry yeah but that's the thing too it's like there could be so many different things but also once things come out of the mold you know i know that they do the same thing a lot of us do is that you tap those things and try and make some kind of sense of where all these things are going obviously sure. dw is massive and they're making tons of drums all day and yeah. so they're on a production line of, you know, okay, we're going to make, you know, 30 10-inch toms and 30 12-inch toms and cool. And then I think, you know, they'll have their guys go in and start tapping together and putting together sets of shells and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, we're making a kit at a time, but then also within yeah. that, we're blending certain things too, you know. Like if you're doing maple all the time or birch all the time, you can kind of do that, but we're doing – you know, specific to us is that, you know, each drum is engineered to do a certain thing, you know, so like the 10 inch rack tom might be just birch. And then, you know, our vintage shells are like gum and mahogany or gum and rosewood. So it might be a progression of something or hmm. a blend. So, you know, when we sit down and I design a kit with an artist or whoever buys our stuff, you know, it's just one of those things like, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like. You know, people send us drums like, I love this floor, Tom, and make it start like this and finish like that and all these great things. And, you know, people will be like, you know, or we'll always say like, what are your favorite records? Like, what you know, what do you want it to feel like? And you know, what kind of vibe are you going for? And what does vibe right. even mean to you? You know, it's like it helps us get into the head a little bit of what's going sure. on. But sometimes with the wood species we can blend it's almost limitless it's really overwhelming for some people and then if you say then you can make it look like anything you want and then we could do any kind of edge you want it's like it's almost like dude help us out a little bit well explain the wood species blending a little bit so the thing is is that one of the luxuries we do have with pressing our own shells is that we can blend pretty much whatever you need to get that certain sound so if you mm. want toms that are just cutting through like crazy, maybe we'll go like, um, maybe we'll do like cherry or ash or maybe a blend of it, depending on if we see you playing and kind of hear some of your stuff. If it's like an artist that has recorded work. And then if you want like really punchy, you know, like cut through bright toms, like you'll know, we'll probably do maple on your floor toms. And yeah, again, it's just each awesome. piece is engineered for what it needs to do. And yeah. sometimes it's a little, it's a little heady because it's like, oh my God. But, and some guys too, like we have a great roster of artists we work with, but like Matt Helders from the Arctic Monkeys is like, listen, dude, like you just kind of know what I like. Just make it not suck and make it <laughs> kind of cool. 70 sounding. It's like, it's great. Yeah. yeah. And there's a big yeah. amount of trust we have in there, you know, and like, it's just one of those things where it's like, cool. It'll be like a mahogany kit. And then, you know, a certain look and, there you go. You know, that's kind of what he needs. But some guys are very particular. Like we have another guy. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Sean from Walk the Moon, he's a drum nerd like you've never met before. But yeah. he will literally be like, okay, like I bought this pearl fiberglass kit, you know, from Nelson, and I need this to kind of sound like this. And, you know, I'll drum tech his albums and stuff like that. And, you know, it's the same thing. Like, uh, again, not to name drop with all these guys, but like, this is like the fun part of like the experimenting and figuring it out and trial and error. But like, you know, Josh Homme, who's a good friend of mine and uh, Queens of the Stone Age front man and plays drums and Eagles of death metal. And yeah, I'm lucky enough to tech for Theodore on like some of the Queens records and all that kind of stuff. Totally. Like Josh knows exactly what's happening with his drums before you even get in the room. So it's been a real fun process with him because he hasn't really had the outlet like me before we met each other of like being like, Hey, I want this to sound like this. And if you can get a guy or a girl starting, you know, where they want to be before they even step into the studio, you know, the potential is pretty endless. You know, like if we start exactly where you're thinking, you know, it's only going to be, you're only yeah. going to go to the moon at that point, you know, just it's in, more in fun. Theory at least. It's, yeah. Yeah. 
and it makes start. things easier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you start exactly where you want and good drums in the studio or live are kind of paramount to success. You know, like if you have drums that sound good, that are ready to go, you know, kind of with your style, it's great. You know, I mean, engineers love that front of house. People love that, you know, For it's sure. really going to be a lot. And it's a lot more fun to play too. If you love the way it feels and granted, you know, like you get to design your own kits and you bring them to life. These things that were, you know, only were alive on a napkin or in your head. And a few months later, something pops out. It's, it's pretty cool. It's you know? Yeah. So uh, people can find you at mdrums.com, but I mean, yeah. you have so much stuff going on as a person, like the fact that you can find the time to do this with all of the work that you do. And I have your uh, LinkedIn up, up here, which I know is <laughs> it's not the best place to like find everything, yeah, but fine. just you're like tour director, production man- manager for Gabriel Fluffy Iglesias. It's like, yeah, where does this, I mean, you have so many different like, outlets for like creativity and like um just uh i don't know man your your brain clearly works in a certain way uh which is very you're pretty put together but you're also you're fun (laughs) you know you're you're a cool guy who's not like you know who's who's very approachable but also like you got to be like on it to be able to do this and work with uh eagles of death metal ex ambassadors a bunch of people i mean pretty awesome yeah oh thanks man yeah no i'm I, I'll tell you this, man, and people that know me, I I don't sleep a lot. I'm a bit of a vampire. Um, I think you have to be sometimes, but I mean, I'm obsessed with drums. I love playing drums, love teching in the studio, love building drums, of course, but I took it to another extreme to where I was touring a lot and I was drum teching, but I would get kind of bored, you know, like being a backline guy, you just load in and it's like, all right, cool. But I used like my business skills to, and you know, I was always a little bit bigger and kind of more uh, put together. So I became the tour manager somehow, even though I didn't know what a tour manager did. Um, I love dealing with bands and artists and then that kind of, you know, led me to where I'm at now. I mean, I think everything was kind of a bit of a progression, you know, in my life and career as well. Um, and they all just kind of built on top of each other, but it all started back from drums, you know, because nowadays, like, you know, I have masters of maple, which is the drum company. And then I have ghost tech, which is my touring and production arm. Um, and we do tour direction, production management, tour management, uh, budgeting, you know, the whole nine design consulting, all that kind of stuff for, you know, guys like fluffy, who's a, you know, massive comedian worldwide. He's a good buddy of mine too. love touring with Gabe. But, you know, all these other bands I'm lucky enough to work with. And, you know, I get brought in a lot of the times to help deal with the budgets and money because I have like a business mind. But, you know, a lot of the promoters and, you know, agents a lot of the times bring me in to work with the band because they know I'm like a band guy, too. You know, like I played in bands and, you know, I'm in the studio with a lot of these guys so I can talk to the bands, figure out what they want, and then I can articulate it to the business side, too, and I can kind of sometimes I'm like a, a glorified middleman <laughs> to where I can keep, <laughs> no, you know, I can keep their, yeah, it is. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's really hard for both of those sides to really interface and articulate their concerns and desires. So I'm, I'm a bit of a conduit to both, you know, and that's really nice to where I can take in what the creatives want and keep them in a bubble and then work with the business side to be like, cool, here's what we actually need to do. And then just kind of come to a, like a happy medium a bit and you know it, it's been really fun so yeah i've been really lucky to do a little bit of everything and still love to tech records still lucky enough to drum tech records which is great cool. and yeah build a lot of drums and you know uh keep up with uh all, all the people playing them so it's it's been really fun but regardless yeah. of like what i do and i've been all over the world many times over and lucky enough to do all these great things but it all started with drums, you know, it's kind of <laughs> crazy to think about that. And like, I was just like some stupid kid, like in my parents' garage thinking like, you know, I yeah. could build anything and thank God I was that young and dumb. And I had, <laughs> you know, people around me that were encouraging to be like, yeah, might as well try it out, you know, and sure. look what happened, you know, so it was great. So that's why I really can't stress enough to people, anybody listening to this or anything is that whether it be drums or behind the scenes and drums, you don't have to be the person on the cover of modern drummer. You can literally be totally, there's 80 different things within that you can do. And 
whether it be educated. I mean, the internet's insane, as you know. I mean, some people just don't even ever play a show, but they're just these amazing educators or you know, content creators. So there's all exactly. kinds of cool things you could do with end drums. It's, it's pretty great. But yeah, I mean, I sometimes you just need to be dumb enough to go try it, you know, and nobody teaches you how to build a drum shell or production manage and, you know, put on a stadium show, but you just kind of figure it out if you're dumb enough to do it and you know, <laughs> persistent enough and you work your ass off, you could do whatever, you know? And yeah. that was the thing. A lot of people in the beginning too, man, they told us, you know, you in old school guys that have been around in the industry who, yeah, obviously no need to mention names, but they're like, oh, you can never build drum shells and you're crazy. And why would you do that? Just go to, go to Keller and call yeah. it a day. And, you know, and yeah, but it was just like, there was a desire to push the envelope and figure it out. Plus also too, like I wanted to just like in my production managing and tour managing career, I've literally done every job on the road. I know exactly what it is. Yeah. And so you can manage I'm not that because you've hosed. done it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to get hosed, but I can say too, I'm one of the few drum builders out there that have literally built things from scratch from start to finish and put it out there. You know, not a lot of people do that because you know, it's just, different times that they come in to their careers and whether they be artist relations or something. But I, I know every step of that process. I've been, you know, up to my knees and muck, you know, cutting down a tree, sure. you know, and on the sales yeah. floor of the NAM show, you know, doing stuff. So I, yeah. you know, I think it's really important to know every part of your craft and, you know, really be obsessive about it because, you know, it's a respect thing too. It's like, you know, people that pay us money to, build us a build them a kit you know you would hope that they take the same kind of care and you know it's that thirst for that knowledge to get make things even better you know to put it out there i mean that's kind of what you're what you're going for you know yeah so i really yeah. uh it's a thing so yeah totally. man, it's uh it's been a busy time in life but it's good so like I said before, Masters of Maple's website is mdrums.com right yep. and then anywhere on social media you want to direct people yeah, it's just at Masters of Maple. Uh, <laughs> two years ago, during the beginning of the pandemic, our Facebook page got hacked. I was even talking to our mutual friend, Mike Dawson, the other day. We are catching up. He was like, I thought you went really avant-garde. <laughs> and I was like, no, dude, it's wild. So our yeah. Facebook page, unfortunately, it got taken down. And that was years and years of archives. But we're uh, so some people were like, are you guys like building drums? And it was like, yeah, we're still here. It's just... The Facebook situation is getting worked out, but yeah, on Instagram, uh, you know, at Masters of Maple, um, you know, in feel free to hit us up and drop us a line or you know whatever. Cool, It'd be great. Yeah, uh, and then I'll just say as we uh, wrap up that there's a really cool interview with you um, from years ago with uh, Ben Hilzinger from Big Fat Snare Drum um, yeah. on their podcast. I think it was before it was the Big Fat Five. It was like back when it was just yeah the Big Fat Snare Drum podcast Dude, or something. Just, I'm OG, man. The big fat five, whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever, yeah. Ben. Yeah, whatever you're, Chris, yeah. Bunch of rich yeah, dudes the over classic. there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. I want to mention, because people listening to this, I hope, I think everyone's learned a lot, but I also want to say that, like, uh, I think, like, a stave drum episode in itself could be great. A Brady drum yeah. episode. I was talking to uh, yeah. someone who's helping me connect with his, uh, Chris Brady's daughter, Kelly, and uh, we're yeah. just trying to make it work. And then, um, other ones where it's just like there's every single thing we talked about. Craviato, that's one I've been trying to get for a long time. Yeah. And these things sometimes, I mean, sometimes it takes five years, I guess, to make sure, an episode yeah. happen. But um, they will happen. So there's a lot more that we can learn. But this is just an incredible look at like just an overview with some deep dives mixed in of how this all works. Um, yeah. So, Sai, brother, I appreciate you taking yeah. the time to do this and listening to the show. And course, now being man. on the show. Love it. Yeah, no, dude, thank you for everything you do, man. I think this is a really important stuff. And yeah, I mean, I hope those episodes happen too, man. I think we need this because again, like with, you know, again, our, our brother, Jeremy, it's just kind of like you, we need that kind of stuff, you know, because yeah. Q is, you know, in theory, like it stopped because Jeremy's not there anymore. And even if it continues in a certain way, his side of the story is so important to have that, you know, the same thing, uh, everything you did with orange County. I mean, I was yeah. loving both those episodes, but again, like if you got Daniel on to talk about orange County at some point, you know, it's totally. just, 
those things need to happen. Please, please, please get Chris Brady on. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. got a, he's one of the funniest dudes you'll talk to. He's incredible. I mean, that's awesome. We used to talk all the time and I actually point, poked me to uh, send him a line, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep doing it, man. I mean, I really appreciate all you're doing and thanks for having me on, man. It's great. Thanks, man. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. <laughs>